This episode brought to you by Audible, your audio book source with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. So don't wait. That's audibletrial.com slash sports for your free audiobook and 30-day free trial. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews. Hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? This is episode 39. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Kendall Gill is our guest this episode, and if you've missed any other episodes, make sure to visit our website, richtakeonsports.com, and there you can find all of the current episodes, previous episodes. You can find out any information about the podcast, find out information about myself. You can also subscribe directly from there on any platform, Google Play, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, and also find us on iHeartRadio. And if you want to connect with us via Twitter, please follow at Rich Take Sports, and I always welcome any type of feedback, and you can send that directly via email, richmond at richtakeonsports.com. Let's move on to the Rich Spotlight. Shining brightly to share the stories of people in sports, this is the Rich Spotlight. If you're a fan of college basketball and the NBA from the late 80s to the early 2000s, then our guest is no stranger to you, and that's Kendall Gill, who played 15 years in the NBA and before that was a member of the University of Illinois men's basketball team who reached the Final Four in 1989, and we know their nickname is the Fighting Illini, but that team was labeled the Flying Illini because they played above the rim. And currently, Kendall is a studio analyst for the Chicago Bulls on Comcast Sportsnet in Chicago. And he also recently competed in the Big Three League founded by Ice Cube this past summer. And so one of the first things that I wanted to understand and ask Kendall was what was that feeling like being back in the arena and competing in front of thousands of people again? Oh, it was great. You know, you got an opportunity and I was actually the oldest player uh, in the league. So, you know, a lot of times the guys would call me OG. I wasn't used to, to that. <laughs> you know, because I feel I felt physically I was better than anybody. But, you know, the competition was great. Um, the league was run first class, you know, and I told Ice Cube and Jeff Quanins, the guys that uh, started the league, that, you know, everything I thought I felt like I was back in the NBA. You know, I didn't I didn't feel like there, there was a drop off at all. Uh, I think that the league will continue uh, to blossom, you know, gives fans uh, an outlet after the NBA championship to, to get their basketball fix. Um, you know, and it gives uh, former players an opportunity to play again, you know, and, you know, I think that that's great. And now was it somewhat of a badge of honor for you being the oldest guy out there to prove to those younger guys that you 
could still compete with them and maybe even compete over them. Absolutely. You know, I didn't get I didn't get the full opportunity because I only played uh, four games. But had I gotten the full opportunity, yeah, I most definitely would have would have excelled. You know, because uh, I, I was in the best shape of anyone there and 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 ready to play. But in one way, the the age thing was a badge badge of honor. But in another way, it was sort of a hindrance too because. The guys felt that oh well he was too he was too old to be drafted, even though I went and dominated the combine. Uh, his age was a factor, and I was told this by Clyde Drexler when when uh, I was finally brought on uh, to the team. You know, Clyde Clyde told me well yeah you know they thought about the age factor and everything, but they didn't really know that 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 doesn't matter with me. You know, I trained totally different than than basketball players, and uh, that that's that's why. You know, I've been able to to maintain all of the skills that I had in the past. And speaking of that different type of training, I know you're big into martial arts, boxing, and, you know, pursued a career in professional boxing for a period of time. And it actually goes back to your early childhood. So how did you get into boxing, first and foremost, rather than basketball? Yeah, well, I I was, uh, I live here in Chicago, and... My parents, when I was a kid, sent us to a sent me and my brothers to a, a day camp that had boxing, and that's actually where I picked boxing up. And you know, I I loved it, and it it gave me an outlet because I was a real uh, active and aggressive kid, you know, and it gave me an outlet to expend all that energy I had. But then my parents moved us out to the suburbs, and Actually, that's where I picked. I started playing basketball. I actually used to hate basketball. You know, we, <laughs> my, my father used to always watch Chicago Bulls games, and um, I would never watch them. I mean, I can remember when seeing the games with uh, Scott May, Artis Gilmore, uh, Norm Van Leer, and, and, and all those guys, but I was never really that interested in it. So uh, I was not really enthralled with basketball. I was more of a baseball, football player, boxer. But when we moved to the to the suburbs, I began to play basketball. And uh I fell in love with the game and uh you know I it paid it paid dividends. <laughs> yes it did. <laughs> Obviously so. So when did it hit you that I am different than some of these other players. I think I'm really good and now I want to pursue playing college basketball. I knew I knew right away. You know, I, I knew right away because athletically, you know, I was just, I, I was, I just felt different. I felt faster. I felt stronger than most kids, you know, and uh, and that was in the fifth grade when I picked up a basketball. I felt like I could jump higher than everybody else, you know, so that, so that's when I knew. And then growing up, were you always competing with your brothers? And how did you continue to develop your competitiveness with your athletic ability? Always and see when when we lived in the city, and we we moved to the suburbs, which was only we only about twenty minutes away from where we used to live. But we, we but it still wasn't city; it was in the suburbs. But when we did live in the city, we had uh, we lived in a two flat, and we lived upstairs in, in a three bedroom apartment. And my my cousins lived downstairs in a three bedroom apartment, and there were four of them, all our age. So it was like I had it was like I had seven brothers. So six, six or seven brothers, you know, 
so that's really where I got, you know, my competitiveness from because those guys, you know, we, we battled all the time and, uh, you know, they really, and, and some of my cousins were older than me, so they would never let us win and they would always, always make us tough and put it on us. So that's really where it got started. And now walk us through just the recruiting process when you're in high school and what that feeling was like, the the first you know letter that you get, the first phone call that you get, and what other schools, I know that obviously Illinois with Lou Henson and I know Michigan State was pursuing you heavily. What other schools were pursuing you? Uh, well, the, the recruiting process for me didn't start off like uh, really hot. You know, I, I tell people all the time, you know, my, uh, I was not a McDonald's All-American. I was a Harold's Chicken All-American, you know. <laughs> so, well, you know, I had to really earn my way up there. But uh, the recruiting process started for me probably uh, after my after my junior year. You know, I remember my first letter was from Northern Iowa. <laughs> and, you know, I was really excited about that. You know, back in those days, you know, if you got a letter, oh, my God. Uh, then, you know, through the summer leagues, I remember I went to five star. Okay. And nobody, uh, in Pittsburgh and nobody knew who I was or anything. And, you know, I made the all-star team there. And as soon as I got back home, uh, to Chicago, the phone was just ringing like crazy, you know, and, and I, I began to get all of these letters. And, uh, I remember, uh, the first time I heard coach Henson's voice. You know, I was so excited over the phone. You know, I couldn't believe that I had, I had done uh, these things to, to garner all of this attention. And, you know, my final schools came down to uh, Iowa State, Clemson, uh, DePaul, Michigan State, and Illinois. On the last night of the recruiting process for me, uh, I went to bed thinking I was going to Michigan State. You know, I had made up my mind Michigan State is the place for me. Uh, but then I, it's a funny story, right? So it's Michigan State, Michigan State. So uh, I'm downstairs the morning I decided I'm downstairs ironing my pants uh, in the laundry room, getting ready for school. And, and I wake up before my brother because I really I'm still restless. I can't sleep. So my brother comes down and says, where is where? What, what's your choice? And I go, Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> it just changed that quickly. It just changed that quickly. You know, because I swore I was going to Michigan State when I went to bed. I swore I was going to Michigan State when I woke up, you know. When you blurted out Illinois, did was there a sense of peace that came over you, though? Yeah, it felt like home, you know, which it is, you know. And uh, a lot of people were saying, oh, well, why are you going to go there? You go to Michigan State, you can play right away. But if you go to Illinois, you know, you're going down there with all these top recruits Nick Anderson who's McDonald's All-American Steve Bartle who's rated very high Larry Smith who's rated very high uh they're going to have Marcus Liberty coming in the next year who's the number one player in the nation uh Kenny Battle just transferred there you know they 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 are loaded but you know what I wasn't afraid because because I knew that through hard work I, I could persevere and overcome all of that stuff you know um which is you know, the way I had been my whole life, you know, I just had to work harder than everybody else. And eventually I could get wherever I wanted to go. Yeah. So was that some extra motivation for you with Illinois that I know if I put in the hard work, I'll get there. So that's why I, I want to go to Illinois. Yeah. No, no, it wasn't extra motivation. That's just the way it was. 
you know, it's just the way it is in my family. You know, my, my mom and dad, I was going to, my grandmother was a cleaning lady. She cleaned up uh, Burke Elementary School on 51st and King Drive here in Chicago and during the daytime and Perlow still at night. So my grandmother would take me with her a lot of times. So I knew how to work, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's why I know how to clean the house better than my wife now. <laughs> because of because of all the days I spent working with my grandmother, you know, and uh, my dad would make us cut the grass, and so I kind of grew up kind of blue collar, so I wasn't afraid of it. Like like I said, it was just that's just the way it was with. And it's just family. in your DNA and second nature. Yeah, second nature. So I wasn't afraid of hard work, and it it, it was an extra motivation for me. One of your schools was Clemson, and obviously as a Clemson grad, I, I need to yeah. know, what was it about that you didn't choose Clemson? Uh, it was just too far away. You know, I, I could, I thought Michigan State was really far, but I mean, it was only three and a half, four-hour drive from, from Chicago. Um, but I, I did I did like the program, and uh, I did, I loved you guys' color, the orange, <laughs> and <laughs> I believe that Eldon Campbell at the time was coming in at the same time. So, and you had a good program, but you know, I just decided I wanted to stay close to home. Well, you know, at that time, Illinois was obviously one of the top programs in the country and really focused a lot of keeping everybody local. And what is interesting that, you know, final four team that you guys had, everybody on that roster was from the state of Illinois and everybody. everybody and so obviously a lot of homegrown talent uh so was that a sense of pride staying local for you oh yeah almost well, definitely because you know all the guys that that went to illinois and as you just mentioned everybody was from the state we, we all played against each other in high school and in high school tournaments so we were familiar with each other and we're like hey you know what if we all stay home you know, we have a pretty good chance at, at doing some special things. And I don't know whether there has ever been a team to make it to the Final Four that were all from the state of Illinois, even the, even the walk-ons. That's a fascinating stat to me. It really is. I don't know if any team in the country has ever had a situation where they've had everybody from one particular state. state. It, yeah, yeah, as far as a major program, maybe some of the smaller schools, obviously, but not a major big-time program. Right. Exactly. And, you know, that's our, our brand of basketball was was we were just tough, man. Everybody on that team was a dog. Like if I had to go to, if, if, if I was going to have a bar fight and I had to take guys with me, my brother would be number one. And then my line, our teammates would be second. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, you, you get to the final four. And what a magical moment that is. And I, I've heard you talk about that. That's the pinnacle of your career in basketball. So as that moment being such a high, what was that like, though, after losing to Michigan? Oh, well, when we beat Syracuse, it was euphoric. You know, that was the happiest I've ever been besides seeing my kids being born um, ever. You know, when that final buzzer went off, because that was a hard game. Syracuse Syracuse was a tough team. And they, they were probably, in my opinion, they were better than Michigan. You know, Syracuse was the I best agree. team. Yeah, Syracuse was the best team that we had played that year, you know. And uh, then when we go to the Final Four, I think what we did, we were looking past Michigan because we had 
beat them twice and beat them handily. So we really didn't bring our A game. And and I, as I've said many times, you know, it took me 15 years to watch that game. I watched it um, after I retired from the NBA. And as I watched the game, I called Steve Bardo up. I said, you know, we gave this game away. I was like, you know that? And then he was like, yeah. He's like, I know. So uh, that that still sits with me to this day because I, I think we were the best team to never win a national championship. I remember that team, and I. it's hard to argue that, Kendall. You guys were a special, special team for sure. So when you go back and watch that game, other than the fact that you felt you gave it away, uh, what else did you take from that game? I took this, okay? It takes many, many, many miles to get to success, but it takes one step to destroy it all. Here's the reason. Nick Anderson, who got every every rebound possible all year long, made every big shot possible all year long. Then in one instance, he mistimes his jump, doesn't block Sean Higgins out. Sean Higgins gets the rebound and puts it over. And nine times out of ten, Nick Anderson beats Sean Higgins every play getting that rebound. And that one play cost us the national championship. I believe because I think if we if we beat Michigan, we go on and we destroy Duke or Seton Hall, you know, because that's the game we were really looking at. So if you take your eye off the ball for one second when you when you're really trying to do something and and your and your focus is is just, is thrown off a bit, you know, you could cost yourself everything you've been working for. Now, were you able to utilize that type of lesson that you learned, and was it immediate for you? to pick up on what you just described, or was that later in life that you really started understanding that? That was later in life that I really started understanding. You know, it wasn't at that point, you know, because had I, had I realized what I just told you immediately, I would be in the Hall of Fame right now. So why do you say that? Because a lot of times in my NBA career, you look, I, I, scored, I, I averaged 20 points a game a couple of times. I, I, you know, I was one of the six players to score in, uh, double figure in all double figures in all 82 games in the 90s. Uh, it was me, Kevin Garnett, Hakeem Olajuwon, Michael Jordan, uh, who else? Uh, Chris Mullen, and I forget the, the the other person. Us six were the only guys to ever do it. You know, uh, I set the set the seals uh, record. Or tied it with uh, Larry Keenan with 11, which which we still hold that record. So I did a lot of great things in the NBA, you know. And I, I think I thought I got a couple All Star snubs. However, even though I accomplished all those things and I, and I had a pretty good career, I didn't do everything that I could have done. You know, I didn't I didn't really live up to my potential, and it's because you know I wasn't focused all the time. You know, um, had, and and that's one of my biggest regrets. You know, and that's why I try, what I try and instill in younger players and, and my sons, you know, that if you're going to commit to something, commit to it 100 percent and keep your focus on that. Now, how difficult was that maintaining a focus now you're in the NBA? Because the NBA lifestyle is completely different. And what was that adjustment period like for you coming from college into the NBA? Well, it was it was difficult in the it was difficult in the context of all of the outside things for me, 
uh, that's where I got into trouble. You know, outside things meaning uh, family members, women, uh, different business ventures that you get involved in. If I if I had to give any rookie any advice, I would say don't get involved in, in any business interest while you're playing. You're making enough money, you know, because you're going to have guys coming out of woodwork, uh, throwing all different types of ideas at you. And uh, you don't, you're not an expert in any of those, you know, you're an expert at playing basketball. So make as much money as you can and do as well as you can in basketball. Then when you retire, if you want to research, whatever those guys are bringing to you for a year or two before you get into it, that's the way to do it. Uh, family members, you're going to have family members coming out of woodwork. And even the family members that are close to you are the ones that could hurt you the most. You know, and a lot of players don't realize that. You know, they don't they don't intentionally mean to hurt you, but they could hurt you uh, emotionally, um, psychologically, um, because people change when there's money involved. And when there's a whole lot of money involved, uh, people tend to lose their mind. Uh, and, you know, they can – and by hurting you, I mean they can play the emotional card with you. You know, and these are family members that you think would never do things like this, you know. And, and that weighs on you when you go out there on the court to play, you know. So, therefore, you have to sometimes be kind of cold, you know, in order to reach your potential. But you're going to have – I mean, look, you're in the NBA, and I can't imagine what it's like now in social media. <laughs> I was going to ask you that, yes. Just Yeah, I can't imagine what it's like because now you have access to – everything and you can see everything on 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 social media media you know and and you thought we were targets back then i can't imagine the dms that the guys are getting now from from different women or men or or whatever you know or or business opportunities I, i can't imagine what it's like so you you really have to be be strong mentally and emotionally as a as a professional athlete you know, because you have everything coming at you, man. And that's what I mean. And, and, and that's what I believe I allowed to uh, mess up my focus as far as being the best player I could possibly be. And you also didn't really suffer any major injuries in the NBA. You, you did have the cluster headache syndrome. How did that impact your NBA career as well? Oh my God, that that impacted it big time. You know, uh, I don't. If you can remember way back in the day, I, they said that when I was with Seattle, they said I had a bout with uh, depression. So, what I never told anybody because I never I never wanted to present any weakness because you know I, I, that's not what I was cut from. I'm not cut from that cloth. You know, uh, so I was always taught you know you know just take it like a man and and you know, deal with it, you know, by my father and my grandfather. Uh, but I ha- I was having, at the time in Seattle, I was having such a tough time with my cluster headaches. And I was using a, a drug called Imitrex. And Imitrex is a drug where you, you, take a, you take a shot, okay, in the arm and the headache goes away. Well, the Imitrex stopped working. And the reason why I stopped working is because you, you're only supposed to take two Amitrex a day at most. Uh, I was in the area of seven to eight 
because my and I wasn't supposed to do that. I was I was abusing it because I wanted my head to stop hurting. Um, but the Imatrex stopped stopped working and my head was just killing me. You know, and it got to the point where whenever I would go to sleep, I would wake up with a worse headache than I than I did when I than I when when I was awake. Wow. So I was afraid to go to sleep, you know, and because because my head would be hurting twice as much. So I didn't go to sleep for three days and, you know, I had to reach out for some help, somebody to help me because I felt like, oh, my God, you know, what am I going to do? And and that's what happened. So I really didn't start to get real relief from the headaches until my my last couple of years with particularly with the Chicago Bulls when I came home to play. Uh, they came up with a drug called prednisone that broke the cycles that I had been dealing with since I was 10 years old. Um, and I can tell you, I played probably half of my career with a migraine. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I don't even know how to respond to that. Uh, fortunately, I've never had you know a migraine, Kindle, so I, I can't even imagine playing at such a high level like you did. Uh, that's impressive. Well, thanks. But I, I mean, you know, I, I've, I've dealt with them since I was eight, 10 years old, you know, and uh, I just learned how to play with them. You know, I had to I had to concentrate extra hard and and things like that because of the pain. But, you know, sometimes I couldn't play with them. It was just that bad. But other times I could mask it where I could uh, where I could get through it, you know. Now, another fascin- fascinating thing, I think, from a professional player that I, I also don't think people understand what impact it might have because nobody else in any type of company or organization has this type of situation that can occur to them, and that's being traded. Yeah. And you were traded in your career. What does that do, and how does that impact your confidence uh, as a player? Uh, you know, I was only traded one time when I didn't know it was coming. Um, when I left the Charlotte Hornets, uh, I left on a free agent contract, um, which I never should have done. You know, that's another story, but I wish I had stayed with Charlotte my whole career. Uh, but, uh, I was, I remember I had come back to Charlotte from Seattle and I was so happy to be back because I never really wanted to leave. I was with uh, Larry Johnson, who, who was the best player I've ever played with. Uh, you know, I, I was back in, in North Carolina wearing the, the teal and purple colors, which I've, I've always loved. And um, i never forget this. <laughs> so, so I'm playing really well. I'm getting, they, they, they move me to, you know, I'm sort of like a Russell Westbrook type, you know, because I'm really a two guard, but they had me playing point guard. I was getting triple doubles, playing really well. And we are in Charlotte, and uh, I think we play the New Jersey Nets. So I see the owner, George Shin, and, you know, George Shin goes, hey, Kendall, you know, we're so glad to have you back. And, you know, we wish you had never left the first time. And, you know, hopefully this time you can spend the rest of your career here. And I was on the same thought process as, as George Shin. Three days later, we're in Miami. They trade me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> three days <laughs> so, oh my goodness so you know when the fans talk about loyalty you know you gotta be loyal yeah. to your team man come on man the owner of the team just talked to me told me you know hey listen we wanted you to hear your whole career so 
so I, I mean, I, I was shocked. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it because I had just, I had just got back. Yeah. You know, and I was playing really well, you know, and, uh, uh, I was traded for Kenny Anderson. Uh, and I understood the trade. Look, it, it's business. They felt they needed a pure point guard. Uh, Alonzo Mourning had just been traded to the Miami Heat. Um, they really, I guess, decided to go in a different direction since the Alonzo trade happened because originally they thought that, okay, we're going to bring our big three back, uh, Larry Johnson, Alonzo Mourning, Kendall Gill, and we're going to go ahead and, and continue to move forward with the franchise. But when Zoe couldn't agree on the, on the contract, um, then uh, I guess they changed the direction of the team. But when the trade happened, uh, I was – at first, you know, I can remember I was out on South Beach. I was out having dinner, and my agent called me and said, you've been traded. And I thought he was just joking around with me. You know, I'm like, what are you talking about, traded? And then I didn't, And then I, he said, no, I'm serious. And I said, what? I didn't even ask him to what team yet. So, so I sat there for like 30 seconds with my mouth open, and I said, to who? And, I, and then he said, to New Jersey. And then I was like, oh. Okay, that's cool. I can live in New York City because New York is one of my favorite cities. So, so I was like, okay, that, that's fine. So, uh, you know, I go back uh, to Charlotte. I get my stuff, and you know, my family meets me, and we they, they drive up to to New York. And you know, I'm playing for Jersey. It's a new start, and uh, you know, disappointing. But you got to realize that you know you are. This is a business. Teams make decisions like this. Um, there's very few players that are that are untradeable, and the possibility of it happening in your career is is great. So you got to you got to get ready for it. Now, later on in your career, you have a, a choice, and I know it comes down to a business decision from your perspective as well. Where you had a chance to join the Lakers, and you choose to re-sign with the Nets. So, what was the thought process, you know, behind that? Money. That was it. But I regret that decision now. You know, and and you and, you can look. And back. why is that? Yeah, I regret it. Uh, you can look back on things and say hindsight is twenty twenty, but at the time, you know, my father and, and grandfather and the men that raised me was like business first, business first. So that was the premise that you know I was going by. Uh, and but the thing about it was that you know the Lakers were a team I always wanted to play for I always wanted to play for them I always wanted to play for Phil Jackson and triangle offense I thought I was built for the triangle um so I went you know I was out in LA and Mitch Kupchak calls me and says okay can I come on down we, I got your jersey we're going to go over to the press conference I was like okay I'm headed down so I go to the elevator door right and I realize that I forget my cell phone in the hotel room so I double back I go to uh, the I go to the hotel room to pick up uh, my cell phone, but the hotel phone rings. So I, you know, I don't know who it is. So I, I'm thinking it's Michigan. So I pick it up and I say hello. It's Lewis Katz, the owner of the New Jersey Nets. He says, "Kendall, we're prepared to offer you seven million dollars for one year." The Lakers were giving me five million dollars for two years. So I sit on I sit on my, on the edge of my bed. I put the pillow over my face. And I go, fuck! <laughs> <laughs> I'm screaming at the pillow, right? 
<laughs> I bet you are. I'm like, don't do this to me. Don't do this to me now. I'm like, why did I walk back into this hotel room? So I had to make a business decision. And I, and I told Mitch, I said, Mitch, I, I got to think about this. This, is, this doesn't make good business sense for me to do, you know. And then he says, well, Kendall, listen, you know, we, we offering you this, but, you know, after the two years is over, you know, we'll, we'll take care of you and everything. Well, a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. Correct. And I think you had already seen that the NBA is truly a business and loyalty is kind of thrown out the door, so it's to speak, as you window. mentioned. It's thrown out That's the window. Right. And then I remember the scenario with George Shin. So, you know, that weighed heavy in my decision, that, that experience with George Shin. And you know, because you know, I really want—I I wanted to play for the Lakers, but you know, I, I had to make the business decision. Now, the reason why I regret it is that I could have won several championships with the Lakers. Okay, and and possibly I would have—I would have gotten taken care of. But you know, you don't know that at the time. So here's how here's how it affects you, and 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 winning championships pays dividends after you play, okay? Because there's guys that have won championships that are on TV now in the analyst position that, in my opinion, couldn't hold my job strap when I played. But they won championships. So so people take that into consideration first. And, and, and that's what I, and this is what I tell my son. I said, son, you got to win in life. You, got, you have to win. I said, you're not going to win all the time but you got to win most of the time. And i give you a perfect example. I'm in a restaurant here in Chicago, right? Restaurant owner knows me. He's a friend of mine. I go in there all the time, right? So I go into the restaurant, me and my wife. guys, hey, Kendall, hey, how you doing, man? How your wife and everything? Scotty Pippen walks in. He goes, hey, Scotty, I got your table right here. <laughs> Scotty's a champion. He got the table before me, even though the guy knows me. You know, people just treat winners and champions different. I'm a, I'm a winner. But I'm, but I never won a championship, and that's the analogy that I use for people, uh, especially kids that I teach basketball, and and you know it's kind of harsh, but it's the truth. Winners get everything, losers get nothing. And I know a lot of that, you know, it's built on hard work to become a winner and getting that championship, and you've got that blue collar mentality that you had mentioned, and so how do you balance? teaching that blue collar mentality to your kids, but also, you know, wanting to provide them with the best things in life. I, I tell them, listen, you, whatever you get, whatever you earn, you're going to have to work for. You're just going to, you're just going to have to do it. That's, that's how we do it. You know, my, my kids have chores that they do the same way that, that I was raised. Uh, their grandparents own a string of, of, of laundromats, which is my, my wife's, uh, parent, so they are required to work in the laundromat. Uh, they're disciplined, you know, and that's that's how we transfer over the values. You know, even though they they live a a really good lifestyle, they still have to work because nothing's free, you know. And that's what we have. To, that's what that's what we have to teach them right away. Well, I know you're teaching them quite a bit. And so what's the life lessons and, you know, that you've been able to learn from sports and apply it in your life and just the impact of sports in your life? Here's, here's, here's the number one lesson. You 
I, I hear so many times when they say, oh, well, he rose to the occasion. And then I say, no, the number one lesson is that you fall to the level of your preparation in anything, in anything. So, you know, the reason why LeBron James is the greatest player in the world is because he prepares to be the greatest player in the world. Of course. What about any words of wisdom, which, I mean, that is a very wise piece of advice right there, but is there any type of phrase or quote that has meant a lot to you in your life? I, I, I would guess it's a poem that says, define yourself for yourself, or else you'll be trapped in somebody else's fantasies of you and eaten alive. You have to define yourself at all times, you know. And listen, I, I've, I've defined myself, and it cost me at some point because, you know, <laughs> I wasn't going to let anybody form a narrative about me, you know, that I didn't want formed. And uh, it, it has cost me, but you know what? I can look at myself in the mirror, and I'm not going to be I'm, I'm not going to be 90 years old saying, oh, man, I should have done this. Spending time talking with Kendall was like walking down memory lane for me as a product of the 80s and growing up in the 80s, watching college basketball being glued to the television each and every Monday night on Big Monday. And it was just a great time in my life. And I remember distinctly watching those uh, flying Illini teams and then following Kendall as he moved on into the NBA. And it's just amazing that even in the NBA, playing at such an elite level, he was battling those issues with those migraine headaches, and he was still able to compete at such a high level. And I agree, he definitely got snubbed several times for some all-star games, and I think he was undervalued for his whole NBA career. And there is no doubt that the Big Three League, they missed out by not drafting Kendall Gill. Even at 49, he is much better shaped than so many of those other players. And if you want to have any evidence of just how great of shape he is in, just follow him on Instagram and you'll see. And you can follow him official. Kendall Gill, and there you'll understand the training that he goes through with his boxing, and I just love the aspect that he continues to have that same type of hard work mentality and work ethic that was instilled into him from his parents long ago, and now he's passing that on to his kids and focusing on making sure that they understand to get to where you want to go, you have to be willing to put in the hard work. Now that finishes up episode 39. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening. 